All right, my lovelies, I know you've been waiting for this one. It is finally time to talk about Ivan the Grand Inquisitor and just all of the crazy intellectual philosophical stuff that's going on here in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, indeed, it is time to talk about pro and contra. Um, but I want to sort of, like, hedge this, specifically because it is so freaking important. Um, like, I have frequently seen people sort of present the Grand Inquisitor as its own sort of thing. Like, Dover for a while was publishing the Grand Inquisitor as a standalone book in its own right. Um, I have heard people talk about this passage just endlessly. Like, this was the first Dostoevsky I ever read in my Intro to Philosophy class in high school, where our teacher gave us Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor, and we read it out of context and just tried to figure out what the heck was going on, um, which indeed launched my love of Dostoevsky. But on the other hand, it's it's dangerous is kind of what it comes down to. I have been stressing since the beginning of this project um, that you have to take Dostoevsky's discussion of philosophy and intellectualism with a lot of salt, with a lot of understanding of context, with a lot of appreciation for what he's doing, and for a lot of understanding for what this means in the voice of the character that he is presenting here. Like, we've talked specifically about how Dostoevsky deals with liberal ideas and intellectualism throughout the Brothers Karamazov. Um, we saw Miyusov and Ivan reacting in different ways to the discussion of the ecclesiastical court question, as well as Zosima and Father Pacey's reaction to this. We saw Smerdyakov sort of presenting this nihilistic takedown of, you know, what would have been a fairly feel-good inspirational story in the Russian media at the time. Here we have the biggest Dostoevsky intellectual tangent of all of the big Dostoevsky intellectual tangents. And there are many of them. Um, like, I've stressed that throughout our discussion. In Crime and Punishment, we have Raskolnikov's theory about crime. And in uh, The Adolescent, we have the, the young man's theory about how to save money. In Demons, we have multiple big idea passages from the different characters who are all part of this intellectual community. In The Idiot, we have several. Like, this is a constant of Dostoevsky's style. But I want to emphasize that. On the one hand, it is just a stylistic thing, and we need to recognize the stylistic importance here. Dostoevsky is profoundly a character author first. He is profoundly interested in the character's voice, how they speak, how they string their lines together, and the grammar in the Russian matches this. He is very interested in what they believe, what they say to each other, how they conduct their business, how they interact with each other. Like, if Dostoevsky was writing now, he would probably be writing for Marvel, and he would probably be doing a heck of a job at it, because they're doing roughly the same thing. Let's bounce characters off of one another, and the plot, the themes, be damned. Dostoevsky at least has a much better command of theme than the Marvel guys do as a rule, but it doesn't mean that he wouldn't appreciate that approach. That's constant. Um, and different writers have different approaches to these things. Like, there's no one way to write a book. Like, I, you know, follow film critic Hulk online, and I love everything that he has to write. Um, but where I part ways with him is he is, at the end of the day, a story structure guy first and foremost, which makes sense, because for Hollywood, story structure is so crucially important to a medium that is very limited by time and space. But novels? Novels can do whatever the heck they want. 
Um, you can have novels that have zero plot whatsoever, like Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, which is just like some guy getting drunk the whole novel. Or alternatively, your, quote, novel can just be a series of vignettes, like Italo Calvino's Cosmicomics or Invisible Cities. Um, you can have novels that are sprawling and nonsensical in their plots and structures, like House of Leaves or Finnegan's Wake. Like, you can do any number of wild things here. And Dostoevsky very much succeeds at having novels that do have interesting plots, but those plots are typically driven by and secondary to the characters that are involved here. But that said, that doesn't mean we're not doing philosophy today. Um, it's hard to put Dostoevsky in a box. He would not have considered himself a philosopher in his own time, but he was very interested in philosophical ideas. He was very interested in the way they interacted with each other in the same way that the characters interact with each other. These, this is probably the fundamental thing that Dostoevsky is interested in. What are the ideas that drive people? And notice, it's not the ideas for their own sake. It is very, very rare that Dostoevsky is going to present some brand new idea for its own sake, especially because he is, he is very concerned with this. Almost all of his major novels are concerned with ideas taking over the minds of young men, whether it's Raskolnikov committing a murder out of his idea, or the characters and demons getting carried away with their anarchism and ultimately causing just senseless violence, or the characters here in The Brothers Karamazov, who are driven by their passions, who are driven by ideas that reside under the surface of how they behave, and then ultimately trying to solve this. The Brothers Karamazov may be an exception insofar as he does in fact prioritize the ideas more strongly than he usually does. He seems more interested in actually coming to a conclusion here, especially insofar as he is following Alyosha around and trying to find what is, you know, the substance of heroic behavior, what makes a good person good. That is, in its own right, philosophy. Likewise, in the writer's diary, he is frequently writing about this. But it almost always, for Dostoevsky, comes back around to character. So we're going to talk about the Grand Inquisitor today, we're going to talk about Rebellion, we're going to talk about that predominantly, amongst all the other things that are going on here. Like, I do want to talk about the stuff going on with Alyosha at the beginning of the section, I do want to talk about Ivan and Smerdyakov and the bad, bad mojo we get from that section, but the main thing I want to focus on today is chapters 3, 4, and 5. Let us talk about who Ivan is, what Ivan believes, how this manifests, and how this works in the greater context of the novel. Um, so, there's a lot to talk about here. I honestly am not sure I'm prepared for it. Like, the Grand Inquisitor, in addition to being this very rich literary something, is also so mired in context, so, you know, dependent on the characters, and so sprawling as a story that I'm not sure I know how to interpret it. And I am incredibly suspicious of people who say that they are. So let us, let that be sort of the guiding mantra here. Let us be cautious. Many people have come to this passage with a very particular philosophical agenda in mind, and they will frequently contract Dostoevsky to take their side. I am suspicious of all of that. We are going to do exegesis, not eisegesis, as the biblical theologians would say. We are going to see what the text is telling us, first and foremost, and then maybe, 
maybe we'll be able to look at the proper context, the philosophical underpinnings here. What is Dostoevsky trying to tell us about freedom, about goodness, about suffering, about all of these really big ideas that people can come, keep coming back to this novel to understand and grapple with? Um, but obviously, first, we got to start, start with the not-Ivan stuff. Um, and I don't want to dwell too much on this. Like, Alyosha has another bustling about day, um, and technically this is the same day that we talked about in our last lecture. Like, the Elder Zosima told him that he has to go and, like, do stuff, so he does. Um, he has, at this point, vis visited his father, who gave us our very grim look at what's going on in his mind when he's not drunk off his butt. Um, we've had the conversation with... Um, Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan Fyodorovich, when he actually, like, has this whole complicated relationship with the two of them, and honestly, I still don't know exactly how to interpret that. Notice that Ivan gives us even more layers here when he stresses that, um, honestly, he doesn't love her, or maybe she doesn't love him, or maybe she does love him. Like, we definitely do not have the equipment to interpret what's going on here. Um, Dostoevsky in not a rare moment, but a particularly ref restrained uh, perspective has not given us enough to see what's actually going on between Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan Fyodorovich. The best sense that I've got is they don't know what's going on either. Like, Katerina Ivanovna, to call what she feels for either brother at this point love is a bit grandiose, I think. You'll notice when Alyosha does in fact come back to Madame Koklikov's after his interaction, as we discussed last time, with uh, Snegirov and his family who are destitute but are, in the last uh, account, retaining their honor, um, he comes back and we find out that Katerina Ivanovna has just flat out passed out at this point. Um, Madame Koklikov seemed to think that her going into hysterics was a good thing, but notice that by the end of this chapter, Madame Koklikov has stressed she's passed out and this is... This is not funny anymore. Um, like, this is not within the script. Madame Koklikov seemed to think that Katerina Ivanovna was just, you know, having fairly normal woman troubles, or whatever the equivalent are in this case. It seems that we have progressed beyond that. Um, what seems to most likely be the case is that Katerina Ivanovna is very confused about her feelings. Um, she is confused about her feelings towards Dmitri, especially because Dimitri has gotten one over on her, namely this whole business where he invited her over to his apartment and we got into this obviously prostitutional situation and then acted the gentleman and gave her some money and called it a day, something that Katerina Ivanovna on the one hand admires and respects, on the other hand absolutely is repulsed by and doesn't know how to grapple with these feelings. So she does feel strongly about Dimitri, something that could be confused for love, but really who knows. On the other hand, we have Ivan, who, as we talked about last time, she seems to be revenging herself upon. Ivan acknowledges this himself, but here he even seems to take it back. He didn't love her, he just thought he loved her, presumably because she was rejecting him, because he had, you know, some sort of jealousy of his brother. And likewise, she doesn't love him, she just enjoys tormenting him, question mark. It's a complex feeling, and calling it love... That's us trying to put a name to a feeling that she's not able to parse at this point in time. Um, notice that the way Madame Koklikov talks about it here especially, and the way that Ivan talks about it later, assumes that love is binary. 
it's one or the other. Either she does or she doesn't, and she can only possibly love one person at the same at any one given time. As much as this is something that our contemporary culture tends to share, like I remember very well watching, you know, How I Met Your Mother, and you have these whole conversations about like, is it love or isn't it? Is this my soulmate or isn't she? And like that same assumption that you can only love one person at a time, and that love is, you know, very easy to recognize or at least binary in its you have it or you don't sort of attitude, that's still there. But as someone who has been studying and living, you know, relationships in the meantime, I definitely think it's more complicated than that. And I think Dostoevsky knows this, but his characters don't. And that's kind of the key here. Um, I think we are not meant to be able to understand what's going on with Katerina Ivanovna. And if we try and parse it as she is in love with X or Y, we're just going to confuse ourselves and end up in a real mess. Um, Katerina Ivanovna is having a really rough time. What I will say, though, is what's going on between Alyosha and Lee's is way easier to parse, if only because it's not pretending to be anything that it's not. Like, you get the sense that Lee's is trying to turn this into something important. You know, she's, she's very much stressing, and we've seen her acting, again, kind of hysterically over the past few days. First, she coyly gives Alyosha this mysterious letter, then she demands the letter back because it's, you know, a front, an affront to her. Now we see Alyosha and Lee's, and they actually get to talk honestly. We're even given this as a frame, this context. Um, Liz is reminded of the time she used to spend Alyosha when they were little kids, like when romance wasn't even on the table, when it's not even something they would be thinking about, and how she just enjoyed talking to him. And this conversation that they have about Snegirov and his children, this too just fits into that mold. It's just a conversation between two like-minded people. They like each other's company. Um, and to some degree, that's enough for Alyosha. Like, notice that Lee's is, you know, talking about, oh, I shouldn't have told you to, to, you know, get rid of the letter, and I do, in fact, really love you. I do really, in fact, care about you. And remember, last time we talked about how Alyosha is like, yeah, I, I will love you, which is, you know, on the one hand, extremely honest of him, and on the other hand, extremely naive and not flattering. But notice that we actually do see a degree of sort of dissimulation from Alyosha. Namely, in the last chapter, we talked about how Lee's demands the letter back, and Alyosha's like, I'm sorry, I left it back in the monastery. Turns out, he's got it on his person, has had it the whole time. There's no way he went back to the monastery. We're still dealing with the same day. He's literally coming back to Madame Koklikov's from Snegirov's. So he deceived her the first time around, but she is okay with this. If anything, he's more troubled by it. He's like, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. And she's like, no, that was the right thing to do. And he's like, I kind of think so too. They care about each other. And they care about each other in this sort of guileless, earnest way. They're not thinking through their decisions. They're not, you know, plotting or trying to understand themselves or making categories for what they feel the way that Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan and Dmitri are all doing. There's a gormlessness about all this. 
And notice, too, that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's innocent in a good way. Like, I, Alyosha stresses a couple times here that he has dark thoughts, that he is a Karamazov, that he feels strongly, more tempted than he lets on, that he is not perfect because he is a monk. Now, admittedly, we've not seen anything from Alyosha to indicate that this is the case. There's been no, you know, hint of traitorousness or, or betrayal the way we've seen especially between Dmitri and Fyodor. We also haven't seen him, you know, go head over heels for any of the other women in this novel. Like, he is pretty restrained and awkward around Katerina Ivanovna and Grushenka when he, in fact, meets them. If anything, the most blushing he's done is around Lee's. Um, but on the other hand, we have to stress, they do propose here. Like, as silly as this conversation is, and as much as you could definitely blink and miss it, there is, in fact, an understanding that they are, in fact, going to get married. Like, there was in the earlier chapter that we talked about, and I kind of stressed there that he's like, yeah, I don't see why I shouldn't marry you. Here they very much do make it official. Lise has stopped sort of putting on this attitude, this affectation that she doesn't care about Alyosha in order to sort of prove something to herself. And likewise, Alyosha, who is always this sort of innocent, honest person, they're both sort of accept this. Yeah, we feel this way about each other. We have felt this way about each other for a long time. We feel comfortable in each other's presence. We have felt this way since we were kids. Why not get married? But notice, too, there's that great moment where Lise is like, can you make sure that Madame Koklikov isn't listening into our conversation, that she isn't eavesdropping? And we get this line from Alyosha about, like, don't think such a thing from her. But then immediately afterwards, Madame Koklikov, like stops Alyosha in the hall and demands to know what's going on. Clearly she was listening in. She was, in fact, eavesdropping to the disappointment of Alyosha. Um, and we even get that conversation from Lee's, where Alyosha's like, well, if my daughter was going to do it, I'd probably listen in too. Like, they're locked in a room together, boy and girl, you know, at this age. They're both teenagers. Yeah, they're going to be careful. This is not appropriate in Russian society. And notice that Alyosha takes advantage of the situation. He kisses her. Like, a real deal, not kiss on the hand or the foot, in typical, like, courtly Russian fashion. We're talking about, like, a real live kiss. And they even joke about it. Like, they even say, you know, we don't know how to kiss yet, so let's stop. <laughs> Which, again, is, you know, just very, very appropriate to the two characters that we're dealing with. Lee's in her innocence and Alyosha in his. Um, they don't take advantage any more than that. And there is something endearing about it as a consequence. You know, this is way more innocent, more childlike, way less morally duplicitous than something we might find in Byron or any of the romantic poets, for that matter. Um, this is naive. They can be trusted in the same room together. They are, to some degree, still children. But Madame Koklikov knows better than to not, you know, sit by the door and make sure that everything is all right. As my parents used to say, when I was a teenager, she is making sure that their feet remain on the floor. Um, this is kind of adorable, kind of cute. But at the same time, notice that the other thing that they talk about, namely Snegirov and his family, Alyosha's kind of dead wrong there. His idea is, yes, absolutely, Snegirov had to reject the money now. But Alyosha's plan is, we got to give him time. Eventually, he will accept the money. He will accept the donation. And that's not clear here. Um, I think Alyosha is thinking, is doing a little wishful thinking here. He doesn't appreciate exactly how 
complicated the situation is for Snegurov, how important it is for him to retain his integrity, and for that matter, that this is not going to change, that this is not something that's just going to vanish. Um, Alyosha's correct in identifying his mistake. Like, Alyosha recognizes, oh, it was because I offered him the money. It was, you know, it was all fine and good as long as it was Katerina Ivanovna, somebody who he's never met, has no connection to, has no reason to feel ashamed before. As long as it was these two people who had both been offended by the same man, namely Dmitri, then it was all okay. But the minute that Alyosha put his nose into it, and the minute that Alyosha was like, I'll also give you as much money as I can, that's what turned the conversation. That's where Snegurov realized what was happening. Because, again, his son, Ilyusha, specifically said, you know, you can't accept money from Alyosha. You can't accept money from the family. You can't accept money from Dmitri. That's where he suddenly made the connection. Maybe he could have gotten the money across. And if he had, it wouldn't have been the right move. As Alyosha, or perhaps just our narrator, recognizes at the end of the last section, this errand was successful. It proved Snegorov's honor. But I'm not entirely sure that Alyosha's in a position to say that it's just temporary. We just need to, you know, salve it for now, and eventually he'll see reason. Um, likewise, we get a really weird chapter after this. Apparently Alyosha is in fact trying to track down Dmitri, like, fervently, trying to find where he possibly could be, and of course nobody knows where he is because Dmitri does not keep a schedule. Um, but he goes to wait for Dmitri in the same place that he waited for him before, namely in the gazebo in the backyard of the landlord next to the Karamazov estate. Um, and he waits there for a while, and then it's not Dmitri who shows up, but Smerdyakov. And this scene is very unusual in this book. Um, on the one hand, because Alyosha finds himself in a very strange position, namely he is sort of unintentionally eavesdropping on Smerdyakov, um, but we also see that Smerdyakov apparently has a lady friend here, like the daughter of the landowner who Alyosha is currently trespassing. Like, she and Smerdyakov are sitting down, and Smerdyakov has this guitar, and they're apparently, like, sitting down to a picnic, and he's romancing her. It's very obvious that they are a romantic couple. Um, and what's more, Alyosha notices that she seems way more into him than he is into her. Um, he sings for her. We've got this whole poem, which, according to our foot or endnotes, Dostoevsky had basically just overheard and recorded at one point. Um... But notice that it's basically just Smerdyakov, like, trying to romance this girl in this secretive way. It's unclear whether or not they've actually done the deed at this point. It's entirely possible, it seems, especially since the girl seems pretty flighty and, and nervous. Like, she's not trying... he's not trying to impress her, and she's kind of just, like, I don't even know. She seems kind of silly and just pointlessly flirtatious here. Um, she's not trying to seduce him either. Um, she is, I don't know, it, it's a hard sort of thing to read, or at least hard thing to explain, um, but they definitely have the, the bearing, the attitude of established lovers, shall we say. This is not the first time they've done this. She says that specifically to Alyosha. Um, it seems that Dmitri has accosted them in the same way that Alyosha is accosting them now. Um, it's very clear that Smerdyakov has been doing this for a while. It's also very clear that Smerdyakov doesn't really care about her. Like, again, I don't want to sort of read in the nihilism 
here that I was sort of talking about before, especially because it really is inappropriate here. Um, he is, you know, reciting legit poetry. He does have some fairly strong opinions about how poetry is nonsense, silliness, which we could definitely read as nihilism. Um, and we do definitely get other stuff from Smerdyakov over the course of this section that leads us to wonder what the heck is going on in his head. But here in this chapter, much as he is emphasizing the depravity and the, the you know, silliness, the sort of nonsense of even romance in this context, it seems more like an act of pride. You know, he is the edgelord teenager who is trying to impress his girlfriend by being disaffected and not caring about things. Like, it is very easy for us to sort of translate Smerdyakov and his guitar into sort of the bassist for a 90s grunge band or something, and him being like, no, oh, it's no big deal. There is no poetry. Everything is miserable. Like... That's just how teenagers are sometimes. Like, in trying to deny their emotionality, that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't emotional. Um, I think there is a nihilistic streak here, like an honest nihilistic streak, especially because he seems so open to talking about his family and talking about his situation. Like, he gets very sort of frank about how they, about how he was born. Like, look at this passage on page 224, bottom of the page. Um, she asks him, you're so smart about everything. How did you ever amount to all that? The female voice was growing more and more caressing. I could have done even better, miss, and I'd know a lot more if it wasn't for my destiny ever since childhood. I'd have killed a man in a duel with a pistol for calling me low-born because I came from stinking Lizaveta without a father, and they were shoving that in my face in Moscow. It spread there, thanks to Gregory Vasilievich. Gregory Vasilievich reproaches me for rebelling against my nativity. You opened her matrix, he says. I don't know about her matrix, but I'd have let them kill me in the womb so as not to come out into the world at all, miss. Like, that's a pretty hardcore nihilistic statement, I admit. Like, you're kind of hard-pressed to say, I wish I was never born. I would rather have not been born than to have them, you know, insulting me and sort of, like, insisting at me that I should respect the places that I come from. Um, it's And then he immediately transitions into the same sort of nihilism towards others. Um, they used to say in the market, and your mama too started telling me with her great indelicacy that she went around with her hair on a Polish plate and was a wee bit under five feet tall. Why say a wee bit when you can't when you can simply say a little, like everyone else. She wanted to make it tearful, but those are peasant tears, miss, so to speak. Those are real peasant feelings. Can a Russian peasant have feelings comparably to an educated man? With such a lack of education, he can't have any feelings at all. Ever since my childhood, whenever I hear this wee bit, I want to throw myself at the wall. I hate all of Russia, Maria Kondrashevna. And I want to stress that line especially, that he hates all of Russia. This is important to Dostoevsky. Like, as much as I have been very much singing the praises of Dostoevsky and talking about how awesome he is and how much he is above his time and so on and so forth, he was a hardcore nationalist. Like, he believed in the great destiny of Russia. The writer's diary is filled with this stuff. Like, he frequently has these conversations about, like, the national identity of Russia, the national character of Russia, and what that means in the greater European theater, like what that is supposed to be. You know, the same sort of sentiments that give rise to the whole alliance and, you know, theater of nations in, in World War One is the same feeling that Dostoevsky is sort of feeling here. And for Smerdyakov to take a marked opposition to this 
would very much place him against Dostoevsky's own sentiments. He had very strong feelings for Russia, the nation, and Russia, its people. He believed that there was something special about them. And notice, Smerdyakov does not. Like, the one time that we saw Smerdyakov deliver his big, long speech about, you know, how the, the guy who died refusing to reject his own faith, who refused to accept the Islam religion, um, how he was actually a fool, and how he was actually ridiculous, and how he didn't have the faith to crush his oppressors, and therefore he didn't have faith at all. Um, Smerdyakov mentions that maybe there is only one or two people who do have that kind of faith, and Fyodor Pavlovich immediately makes fun of him. Ah, that's the Russian character in you. That You are a Russian after all. You do in fact believe in the one or two. That qualification there is identified by Fyodor Pavlovich and Ivan, for that matter, as being distinctly Russian. The Russian refuses to believe in God. The Russian refuses to believe in religion, but they're willing to accept the possibility that there are a couple of really true believers out there who really do perform miracles, thus actually insinuating that they do in fact believe everything that they claim to deny. Here we almost see Smertyakov reacting to that, like, it's hard not to read this as Smerdyakov getting petulant about how he was being insulted before. You know, in that same sort of teenage grunge way, you get this sense that Smerdyakov is, like, still, still really annoyed by the fact that they were like, yep, he's still a Russian, and he's like, I am not a Russian, I'll show them, and like immediately start talking when behind closed doors to this person who he feels like he can comfortably talk to slash manipulate. He feels very eager to say, I hate everything Russian. I hate all of Russia. And in fact, sort of denying this streak in himself, trying to kill it in himself. Um, but we also see things change a little bit. Like, obviously, Alyosha can't keep it going the entire time. He sneezes, you know, in classic narrator sort of like power of the writer, power of fate sort of fashion. Dostoevsky ruins the scene by having Alyosha sneeze and, and sort of appear and have to confront all the other characters. And Alyosha asks him where Dmitri is. Like, that's that's the key here. Like, Alyosha is here to find Dmitri. Smerdyakov is here and knows where Dmitri is, and importantly for us, we suddenly realize that he and Dmitri are apparently fairly deep into conversation with each other. Like, Smerdyakov very much emphasizes that Dmitri has been threatening him, um, and that as a consequence, Smerdyakov has been, you know, feeding Dmitri information, which will become even more important when Smerdyakov talks to Ivan about this later, so I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, but Smerdyakov does lead us on to the next point, namely, apparently Ivan and Dmitri were supposed to meet. There was some sort of plan there, which... Ivan never lets on to. Like, we don't know if Smerdyakov is lying here and just sort of trying to get Alyosha out of the way. We don't know if it's true and Ivan is trying to hide something. Ivan certainly doesn't give us any indication that we should believe that he was scheduled to meet Dmitri. It certainly seems like Smerdyakov is lying to get rid of Alyosha, which we'll come back to that. At any rate, as soon as Alyosha hears that Dmitri is at the tavern with Ivan, he is off. And he goes to the tavern, and he's a little worried at first because he is still dressed in his novice smock, which is not appropriate dress for a tavern. But who cares, because apparently Ivan has this, like, separate 
like walled off or screened off portion of the tavern all to himself and he just kind of like apparently just grabs him brings him up onto the porch and we just have our conversation from there um and notice notice the context here notice the situation because obviously everything that we're about to talk about rebellion grand inquisitor all of this happens in this tavern at this moment and it is in many ways an accident Ivan was not planning to meet Alyosha here. He stresses this, but he's glad he did. Um, it would seem, despite the fact that Ivan and Alyosha largely grew up together, remember, they are the sons of the same second wife of Fyodor, they were taken in by Grigory at the same time and sort of passed off into, you know, the other family, which was relative to their mother, but also apparently re uh, relative to uh, Katerina Ivanovna, all at the same time. They spent a lot of their childhood together, and they cared about each other. Ivan let slip. He does, in fact, love his brother, or did. Um, as he, you know, said to Fyodor Pavlovich earlier in a couple of, a couple of sections ago. Um, but for Ivan, this is fortuitous. He wanted to talk to Alyosha, and not in some sort of passing, you know, let's exchange pleasantries about the weather sort of way. As we saw with Dmitri, as we've seen with many of the characters so far, he wants to unburden himself to Alyosha. He wants to show Alyosha his whole soul. And in some way, we should be thinking of Dimitri at this point. It's probably no coincidence that Dimitri takes three chapters to unburden himself to Alyosha, and Ivan also takes three chapters to unburden himself to Alyosha. Um, even the way that it progresses is similar, insofar as they both sort of start with poetry and romance and work their way towards the sort of deeper issues, the deeper stories that are informing them. But where for Dimitri, it's stuff that actually happened and misbehaviors that he's now ashamed of. For Ivan, it's all this intellectual stuff. It's all trying to sort of contend with his own big ideas. Um, and the first thing that they talk about, which I really do want to stress, because again, it's so important to contextualize the big ideas that he's about to present. The first thing that that Ivan leads with is that he, as Alyosha has pointed out before, isn't a great scholar. He is a green young man, Dostoevsky, through Ivan's speech, says. They both are. You know, Alyosha is 19, Ivan is 23. They are both still very young. And as much as they are, you know, uh, just gifted with, you know, this intellect and this differing experiences, Ivan in the university, Alyosha at the monastery, as much as they do have these profound philosophies at the core of who they are, at the, at the end of the day, they're still kids on some level. Like, I know that this is not, you know, I, I know that much of my audience listening to this are probably college students and will therefore get very offended at the prospect, but seriously, when you're like 19 to 22, you don't know anything. And that's not belittling, because we were all 19 to 22 at some point. Like, anyone who is older than 19 to 22 can look back at that age and be like, wow, I was a moron then. I did stupid shit all of the time. I believed I understood the world and didn't. I got into foolish relationships that I shouldn't have and hurt people in ways that I should have been smarter than to do that. I hurt myself. I shamed myself. I made stupid decisions that I will come to regret for, in many cases, the rest of my life. Whether they're big decisions, like I took out a whole bunch of loans and are therefore, you know, mired in debt for the rest of my days, or if it's small decisions, like, man, if only I had said this at that time, maybe she would have continued to go out with me. Like, those sorts of things haunt people. 
um, in their older age. And I, I'm not speaking from like a special experience here. It's not like I have some mysterious dark past. I'm saying that this is normal. That virtually everybody I've talked to who is my age and who is willing to sort of betray this kind of information has these thoughts. Um, whether it's my parents or me or my wife or anyone. People look at that time and they realize they were very foolish. If only because, you know, you've got a lot more learning to do. You haven't figured it all out yet. You know, even the philosophy, the big kind of questions that Dostoevsky is wrestling with, like, it is the rare few in the world, like in the history of the world, who offer us the level of insight that somebody like Dostoevsky does. If it's that rare, then that means that most people are never going to figure it out. Like, it doesn't matter whether they live to 30 years or 70 years, in many cases people just aren't going to get there. So if you are 19 to 23, you can practically guarantee you are not there. Maybe you'll get there, maybe not. But a certain amount of humility is necessary. And I really appreciate that both Ivan and Alyosha admit that humility going into this conversation. And it's important for us to recognize it, because so many people get so excited about what Ivan is talking about in the next couple of chapters, they forget that they literally preface this by talking about how naive, how uninformed they actually are. Ivan doesn't necessarily believe this. Like, he does sort of su suggest this as this passing idea, but we can see from the very fact that he then launches into this grand intellectual discussion that on the one hand, he said it because he believes it, on the other hand, he said it and he doesn't believe it. He immediately launches into this, you know, self-aggrandizing story, this, you know, conviction that's beyond him. But he does keep hedging it. Like, throughout the Grand Inquisitor especially, he mentions that this is just a kind of bad poem that he wrote. Which, again, based on what we're going to see of Ivan in the future, it's complicated. He has strong feelings about this. On the one hand, it is true. It is silly. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. Alyosha's criticisms all are true. On the other hand, Ivan does take it really seriously. This is a part of him. This is part of who he is. These are some of the best ideas he's ever come up with. And he believes in his heart of hearts that he's a great mind, that he, in fact, can change the world by revealing these ideas, or at the very least is living his life according to these ideas. Um, they are important to him. But I should also stress that this, this is kind of just a thing that everyone in Russia is doing at this moment. Like, we, I've talked a little bit about the context here. I've talked about, you know, the, the sort of differing liberal ideas between Miusov and Smerdyakov and Ivan and so on, but I don't think I've talked about the real context here. What's actually going on in Russia to sort of make everybody crazy in this way. Um, in the 19th century, Russia was a very weird nation, a, in a very weird sort of position. Um, in the 18th century, P Peter the Great had largely instituted these big reforms to sort of try and catch Russia up with the rest of Europe. Um, and this is honestly pretty normal. Lots of Europe is doing this. Um, in the 17th century, we get the two sort of major centers of the European cultural landscape, namely France and England, having these radically different approaches to how government works and how to like govern oneself. France, by being this hugely important autocratic society led by King Louis XIV with you know, these 
huge demonstrations of opulence and the creation of Versailles and sort of the centralization of the government. And then in England, we see revolution and revolution and revolution and revolution, and then a bunch of philosophers basically saying, hey, revolution is actually healthy and the ruler of the state should be chosen democratically slash at the will of the people. And for literally the rest of the 18th century, people are going to be chasing after these ideas all over Europe. Um, you know, new centers of scientific education are going to rise up, new, you know, palaces styled after Versailles, new philosophical ideas through the philosophes and the Enlightenment and all of the other Enlightenment thinkers in England. Um, many countries in Europe are sort of riding this faddish wave of love of rationality, love of intellectualism. And Russia, at roughly the same time, is going through its own renaissance. Like, it was not up to the level of a France or a Portugal or a Spain or an England or a Denmark or the Netherlands at this point in time. It was very much backwater up until the 17th century, largely because it was still under Tartar rule until, like, the 16th century and was very much not participating in the Renaissance as it was sort of gradually developing throughout Europe. Um, even the Protestant Reformation doesn't really touch Russia all that much because Russia is pretty thoroughly orthodox. So as a consequence, when Peter the Great says, hey, we need to catch up with Russia, Russia is like, what? And there's really no precedent for this. And for a hundred years, there's sort of this clumsy aping of European society as they're sort of trying to follow Peter's lead and, and create a Russia that can stand up with Europe as, as being an equal to the likes of France or Spain or Austria, um, largely driven by Peter the Great on the one hand and Catherine the Great on the other. Catherine the Great was, in fact, an Austrian princess sort of imported for the, the Tsar who ended up basically overthrowing the Tsar and deciding to do things her own way. But that very much leads us into this 19th century moment. Russia has to some degree caught up. There are universities now. There are printing presses readily available. There's a hunger for intellectualism. There's a brand new streak of literacy sweeping through the, the upper and middle classes. But at the same time, it is very much still an autocratic state the people do still swear fealty to the Tsar. Um, unlike these more democratically-minded nations who are undergoing revolutions throughout the early half of the 19th century, Russia remains a monarchy in the person of the Tsar. Um, as much as Napoleon sweeps through, and it is in fact the Russians that end up stopping them because they win over Napoleon, where other Napoleonic conquests end up revol revolting year after year after year throughout the first half of the 19th century, the Russians are a little slow to join them. And then when they do in fact start making radical changes, when in fact Alexander II like, totally abolishes the, the system of serfdom, it's in the middle of the night, top down. Um, on the one hand, the Russians are eager to reform. They're quick to accept these new ideas and get excited about the, the first romanticism in the person of Pushkin and Gogol and now realism in the person of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov. Um, they're quick to embrace these ideas, but they're still slow to the party. They're still late. Um, and what's more... Because there is, on the one hand, this new love of intellectualism and these top-down institutions and infrastructure supporting that, all of these new universities in Moscow and St. Petersburg, all of these new urban centers and the railroads connecting them and all of this, on the other hand, it hasn't 
permeated the country yet. Like, here in the setting of our small town where the Karamazovs reside, there are all of these nobles talking big ideas, but the peasants haven't even heard even the slightest bit of this. Like, maybe a couple of them, but you get these pretenders. People like Miusov, who is so proud of the fact that he actually was, you know, in Paris during the Great Revolution. Um, these sort of, like, fakers like Maximov, who are acting like they know what's going on when in fact they don't. Or people like Smerdyakov, who are grumpy about it, who spent some time in Moscow and are convinced that they're erudite and now hold this over their background. Like, notice how much Smerdyakov despises Grigory Vasilyevich, how he perceives Grigory Vasilyevich's um, discussion of his parentage while he was in Moscow as a betrayal. Um, Smerdyakov is ashamed of his background. He is trying to be a liberal in a world that doesn't admit of it. Um, but at the same time, on an even more sort of robust level, there isn't a place for all this intellectualism. Like, yeah, you've got a handful of universities and a ton of students so they're graduating, and they're not becoming college professors. The college professors are still being imported. They're all German. They're all French. They're all from, you know, civilized Europe, where these ideas are current and new. Um, the students are basically getting funneled right back into the civil service. They end up serving the monarchy. They become the nation's bureaucrats. Um, you can see this sort of disconnect in stuff like Gogol's The Overcoat, where you have this you know, mid-level bureaucrat who's very highly educated, but clearly doing a job that's below his education, who gets really anxious and worked up and ends up obsessing over these sort of marks of status, like The Overcoat, or like Raskolnikov's beaver, um, beaver scarf. Like, people get really worked up in these urban environments. They're not set up for it. Um, this is right smack in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, which the Russians were late to, and they are kind of a hundred years behind the times. They are s pretending to be a contemporary industrialized nation while they are actually in the process of industrializing. Um, their cities aren't set up yet. They're still gross, ugly, muck-ridden, you know, muddy places. Even the major thoroughfares in St. Petersburg, Dostoevsky will frequently describe as being muddy and ugly and gross. There's an endearing quality to that, but it's something that you can't get away from. And there's something poetic about this. All of these students with nothing to do, nowhere to go, all of this free time on their hands, and no outlet for it. Russia is in the thrall of these big ideas specifically because there's no place to actually point them. Russian culture is still young, nascent. It hasn't developed yet. So what we get instead in this 19th century in Russia is there's this sudden explosion of publications, which is something that's going on all over the place. Like, I don't want to make this out to be a specifically Russian thing. It's just the way that Dostoevsky talks about it, it is specifically Russian in the way that it develops. Where England and France and Germany to some degree, and even the U.S. at this point, have like fairly robust publishing houses, respectable publications that intellectuals can sort of devote their effort to publishing toward, the Russians 
really don't. Like, their whole publishing engine has only existed for about 150 years, if that, at this point. And the fact that there is still censorship from the Tsar, but not as much censorship as there used to be, means that there's all of these people who are sort of venting their opinions, you know, using their intellectualism to write these sort of crap periodicals, these crap opinion articles, these sort of throwaway take or throwaway observations of, you know, trials or random things that happen in the street, like we hear that Ivan was doing. Um, people are very excited. People are very political. These students are very eager to share their ideas, but there's also not really a legitimate way to do that. So there's this explosion of just random garbage publications. And on the one hand, I say that they're garbage. On the other hand, this is where Russian intellectualism is happening. You know, the writer's diary that I keep referring to was basically Dostoevsky doing this, creating his own publication, um, giving himself a position from which he could, you know, say whatever was on his mind, write an opinion article, publish the work of a couple of up-and-coming writers. Um, this was how Russia talked to itself, in a sense. And I want to stress this because especially, like, it resonates especially for me in my time. Like, here in the 2010s and 2020s, we're experiencing something remarkably similar. Um, in the 90s, we told every student that they had to go to college, and as a consequence, you know, in the 90s, in the 2000s, Gen X, the Millennials, however we want to sort of refer to them, um, all of these people got these really high-level educations right in time for this big housing market bubble to burst in 2008, and for all of those positions to sort of evaporate overnight. I suspect that right now, here in 2022, what with the labor shortage, it's actually coming back around and there's more you know, room for the sort of intellectually defrauded um, to kind of find places for themselves in the intellectual environment or to sort of make a living doing stuff like making podcasts on the internet. Um, but still, there is this awkwardness, there is this wildness, this sort of uncensored, you know, like depravity to the way that we talk to each other, especially online. Like, I have no doubt in my mind that this is what gives way to things like the conspiracy theory stuff from QAnon or like the hardcore right-wing conservative intellectual movements like what we see with Jordan Peterson or um, Joe Rogan or, or the like. People who have a college education, who are not careful scholars, who are not trained to that, who don't have their PhD, who have been kicked out of academia for one reason or another, but who find that by being charismatic enough they can get followers, they can get people to, you know, support them online. And I'm not excluding myself from this. Uh, like, if anything, that's what lures people like me, people like the intellectuals of, you know, academia, to a character like Ivan. We see kinship there. We recognize that Ivan's sort of over-intelligent uselessness is very parallel to our own. We also feel like the rest of the world are a bunch of idiots and we can't believe that we're stuck in this, you know, podunk backwater town forced to listen to people say ridiculous things all of the time, while we, we the true great thinkers, actually have the truth, have culture, have something resembling intellect. 
Um, and it's maybe not that unique to us or to Russia, for that matter. Maybe this is how the middle class has always felt. Maybe we should recognize that in addition to sort of the economic classes of, you know, Marxist thinking, we should also recognize a sort of intellectual classism where, you know, people like me who spout off on the internet and make relatively popular or book walkthroughs of things like the Brothers Karamazov are in some sort of intellectual middle class beneath the people who are truly cultured, who really do get paid to study this stuff for a living, and the people who are just interested, either amateurishly or not even at all. Uh, it's tricky, but I think it's also really telling, because on the one hand, in times of intellectual lawlessness, like this, when there is no sort of governing body dictating what can be said and how can, it should be said and what is culture and what is not culture, what is a good idea versus what is a bad idea. You know, as much as I frequently badmouth academia, I absolutely do respect the peer review system. And I find that painful to miss when I do stuff on the internet or when I interact with people on the internet or when people are like, hey, you should really watch this YouTube video. It's really smart. And I'm like, this is painful. Um, which is not elitism. Like, there are lots of really cool, really interesting YouTube creators out there, but, again, there's a lot of crap. As the great man said, 90% of everything is crap, and 90% of everything that goes on the internet is crap as well. If anything, it might be a higher percentage in this case. But the point that I want to make here, the reason why I'm going on this huge tangent is that when we see Ivan, we see him in this particular situation. We have to recognize that his intellectualism is questionable. That he is just an undergrad at the end of the day. That Russians aren't really turning out PhDs. There's no room for that. If you graduate from a Russian university and you want to go on with your scholarship, chances are the only place that there is to do that is you go to Paris or you go to Oxford or you go to any of the other really established universities in Europe, because you're not going to find them in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that's just not an option for most middle-class Russian students, either because they don't have the money or because they don't have the ability. Um, people like the French want to educate their own people. Why would they take in a whole bunch of Russian exchange students, especially at this time, at such you know huge cost to themselves? For the most part, many of Dostoevsky's characters have spent significant time abroad. Um, Ivan himself has done a little bit of that. Um, like, probably the best example is Prince Mishkin, who has spent a whole bunch of time in Austria and is just now, at the beginning of The Idiot, coming back to Russia and sort of is now a fish out of water in the Russian world. Um, it's tricksy that way. But the emphasis here is that Ivan doesn't have a next move. Like, notice that he doesn't even have a plan. He's very busy, and he seems to be very self-important. Like, notice that, especially in the back half of this section, we, we see Ivan, you know, not willing to talk to Fyodor, not willing to talk to Smerdyakov, because he has to be going, he has big things to do, presumably in Moscow, like, probably writing more of those, you know, observe, observant man-on-the-street articles that he's apparently so good at. Um, he, but it's not like, I have my studies to consider. It's not, you know, I have to publish my big idea. Like, even when we talk about the Grand Inquisitor, it was unclear to me whether it's actually been written down at this point. He talks about how he's memorized the poem, that he wrote it and that he memorized it, but it doesn't seem like it's ever been published. 
I'm not even sure he's tried to get it published. It seems more likely that he's protecting it. Like, he has this idea, and he doesn't want to submit it to the scrutiny of all those quasi-intellectuals, all those fakers and critics, because it is a cutthroat world out there, in the same way that our internet is a cutthroat world. You say something from the heart, and you present it online, and then you wait for the comments. Like, people get eviscerated online. They, I know that we like to use the term canceled these days, but it's more complicated than that. You know, if somebody says, you know, I believe that the Black Lives Matter movement is correct, they can predictably expect just tons of people to just attack them in the least kind ways possible. They'll get death threats, and they'll get, you know, publicly insulted. And to some degree in Russia, this is also happening. Like, Dostoevsky has enemies, um, and he will both publish sort of insulting comments and, and sort of print insulting material about them, and he will also expect to be insulted by them. Because, again, there's this sort of intellectual lawlessness and this wild scape of, you know, competing publications. And to some degree, in the same way that the internet does, these publications survive because they invite these criticisms. People want to see each other tearing each tearing each other's throats out. Like, we click on the, ex the very controversial article or the very controversial video or whatever specifically to see this fight go down. We are eager to participate in some cases. Like, it wouldn't be possible for people to get cancelled on Twitter or to be taken down for some reason if it wasn't for the fact that there is a clear vast number of people who are swimming around the internet looking for blood. Um, who want to see people torn apart. And Dostoevsky is interested in that, in this novel. Not here. Like, obviously, Ivan is just presenting his ideas without, you know, submitting them for critique or approval. Like, he's just talking to Alyosha, and he knows that Alyosha will listen. Like, the little bit of critique that Alyosha offers, Ivan, if anything, is, is sort of curious about. He, he's interested. But we will talk about it later. Like, in fact, one of the major themes, not in the next section, but the section following, is all about this. How eager we are to, you know, tear down the things that we admire or appreciate. How eager we are to destroy what is good and what is beautiful. The things that we, we even personally would admit are good and beautiful. Um, it's a dangerous world that Ivan inhabits, and his anxieties are well, well placed. Like, why would he submit the Grand Inquisitor to that? On the one hand, his intellectualism is earnest. Like, as Elder Zosima identifies, he is really struggling with this. He is really trying to figure out for himself, does he believe or doesn't he? What does that belief mean? Can he even believe? But then on the other hand, as much as the intellectual world of Russia is, you know, abundant with these new ideas, rich with possibilities for publication and discussion, at the same time, it's not monitored. And it is dangerous. People's careers can be made and lost in seconds in Russia. Dostoevsky himself, like, when he published Poor Folk, huge acclaim. Everybody loved him. He published one more story, and everybody's like, wow, this guy is totally a one-hit wonder joke, and nobody took him seriously. It took him going to prison 
um, for him to sort of get his groove back and sort of re-enter the the um, the popular circles, like get sort of more honorable. And even then, his enemies in many cases remained his enemies. Um, so he is keenly aware of this. And as much as Ivan does sort of have these big ideas, and we should respect these ideas as something that both Ivan and, to some degree, Dostoevsky are wrestling with, we also have to recognize that Dostoevsky... Dostoevsky is careful about this. Dostoevsky knows that there's context. He sees Ivan not as, you know, this unrecognized genius, you know, who is secretly, like, hiding out before his time, the way that, you know, so many contemporary Hollywood movies like to portray these sorts of tortured intellectuals. You know, you, you have all of these biopics about, you know, savants or, you know, very skilled singers or whoever. And it's just like, if only people would recognize their genius, as we do, now that they have been established geniuses for 25 years. Like, Dostoevsky is not doing that here. Dostoevsky is wrestling with the actual matter of being a genius. Um, or even if we can call that genius. See, that's the danger here. To some degree, Ivan is wrestling with whether he is a genius at all, whether he's not just a mediocrity, whether he's not just some loudmouth person publishing articles to, you know, assuage the fact that they can't actually get a decent job. Um, that's very similar to our times. And I think the Russian, you know, just as Dostoevsky is so keenly interested in these young men so I think we are especially concerned with that whole issue of toxic masculinity. I think that these are very similar problems, um, and that as a consequence we can learn a lot from seeing how Dostoevsky sort of wrangles these subjects, how these characters act and how they solve their problems. Um, but enough context. Obviously there's a lot there, and I do want to talk about it, and I do want us to be aware of this, and I do want to put it in context. But that's the key. Like, it has to be in context. We have to recognize this as more than just the ideas. We have to recognize what these ideas mean to the characters, to Dostoevsky, and to us. And I want to definitely emphasize this for one especially important reason. The Grand Inquisitor is frequently turned into its own novel. People read this in college classrooms all across the country, all the time. Like, it is probably one of the most dissected passages in the whole of Russian literature, period, and the end. And what I find so absurd about this is that for Dostoevsky, it's clear that the next section is way more important. Like, we get this entire section, some 40-plus pages, compared to the Grand Inquisitor's, say, 20 to 25, which is just devoted to the ideas of Elder Zosima. That's it. Like, that's all it will be, is the life of this man, who Dostoevsky is clearly presenting to us as heroic, as good, as truly inspired and insightful. And that passage, nobody cares about. Like, nobody. Nobody. I don't even think that when Professor Craved, like the, the one guy who I actually did take a class on the Brothers Karamazov with, I don't even think that he was terribly interested in it. But for Dostoevsky, it's primary. Like, if you in fact take all of the characters in this novel that we've met so far and say which one of them is the most authoritative, whose philosophy does Dostoevsky value the most, it is hands down, no question, Elder Zosima. Not even, like, 
not even a competition. Look at the way they're presented, look at the way they talk about themselves, look at the way they interact with other characters, look at the way the other characters respect them. Ivan is a crapshoot, and everybody knows that. Fyodor likes him, which, if anything, should make us suspicious. Alyosha likes him, but that's largely because of compassion. Everybody else is just like, eh, I guess he's smart. But they don't even appreciate his intelligence. Very few can even keep up to his level. You have Father Pacey who talks back and forth, but Father Pacey, you know, he's a monk. He does this for a living. He is one of the few people who have found the solution, and it's through the church, not through the actual secular university system. And on the other hand, we have Smerdyakov, who has been through the Russian university, and who we should recognize at once as being really dangerous. So Ivan is an unknown quantity here. And the fact that, that person after person, scholar after scholar, you know, student of Dostoevsky after student of Dostoevsky has somehow gravitated to what Ivan has to say. Ivan the green, Ivan the young, Ivan the inexperienced, Ivan the anxious and neurotic, and not Father Zosima? This book is a mirror, and we will see in it what we want to see in a large sense. For those of us who see ourselves as Ivan, we will see Ivan as the wisest character in the room, and this is the richest characterization that Dostoevsky has to offer. But if you were looking at the actual construction of the mirror, if you were looking at the way that Dostoevsky is presenting these characters, it's no question Zosima. If Dostoevsky believes something in this text, it's not the Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor, I don't know what it's doing here. Like, many scholars have argued that Dostoevsky secretly harbored these doubts, that, so that Dostoevsky was secretly an atheist, that Socrates... That I keep saying Socrates because I was just teaching Socrates the other day, that Dostoevsky is, in fact, wrestling with his faith and feels the same way that Ivan does, but, you know, he knows that he's supposed to believe, and as a consequence, he, he sort of fakes it. He pretends that he is a Christian, and I don't believe that for a second. I just don't. He's too heartfelt about the other stuff. He's too quick to emphasize Father Zosima's precedence amongst the other characters. He's too quick to let all of the characters be shocked, awed, dumbstruck when a character like Father Zosima cuts to the core of who they are. And for that matter, at the end of the day, as much as we love Ivan and his big ideas, I suspect that what we discussed last week about Snegirov and the suffering of these peasants, how these people have sort of been trampled by these richer folks who just don't care about the consequences of their actions, I think that's far more core to what Dostoevsky wants to talk about here. Ivan is set dressing, and to some degree, I think we could successfully skip this chapter and not even miss that much as far as the plot of the Brothers Karamazov is concerned. But it is important culturally, and it is important to us to understand who Ivan is. And it is important to us thematically. So I want to look at it. Let's take this apart. First Rebellion, then the Grand Inquisitor. And Rebellion, Rebellion at least, is straightforward. Like, we know exactly why Rebellion is in here. Ivan does not mince words about it. Ivan does not hide his goal about it. Ivan makes it explicit what he is trying to argue here. And it is also incredibly obvious what it has to do with the rest of this book. Like, over and over, we've seen these characters suffering. 
And here in Rebellion, we see the keenest example of suffering that Dostoevsky, and presumably Ivan as well, can muster. We see the suffering specifically of children. Children who do not warrant this suffering. And this is how it is framed to us. And unlike the Grand Inquisitor, which is all in Ivan's voice, we very much get the sense here that because Alyosha reacts the same way that Ivan expects him to, that we should expect Dostoevsky to feel the same way. We are meant to be moved by this chapter of rebellion. Like, I don't think there is a hidden agenda here. I think where we go with it is the key. Uh, but this is just plain true. And I should qualify this to some degree, like the early episodes with the, the especially Dostoevsky picks out a couple of particularly <sighs> troublesome examples with the Turks and the Caucasus, how apparently they're like chucking babies into the air and catching them on their uh, bayonets. Like, I'm not entirely sure how much these are verified. There is apparently some discussion in the Dostoevsky community about whether or not this was propaganda that was printed in the papers, or whether these were trumped-up stories. Who knows? Obviously, again, the lines between censorship and, and not censorship are a little vague here, and the Russians, as I just emphasized, are all about these sensational publications. It's entirely possible that this is bullshit. But it also shouldn't distract us, because Dostoevsky does specifically talk about multiple occasions within Russia, and these were, in fact, well-documented newspaper stories. He talks about them in the writer's diary. Um, they were, in fact, like well-documented episodes in Russian life. Specifically, these chapters, and the two that he emphasizes the most, the child who was locked by their parents in an outhouse with their face smeared with their own crap because they wet the bed. And the kid who was apparently threw the rock that hit the dog's paw, and as a consequence, the lord of the estate apparently, like, had him torn apart by his own dogs while his mother looked on in horror. These two examples are the ones that Ivan focuses on. These are the two examples that Dostoevsky keeps coming back to. These are the two examples that are meant to resonate with us the most. And I am talking about them in this dry, intellectual, like, distant way. But I should stress, this is some fucking bullshit. This is awful. This is some of the most horrible description of human suffering that I have ever read. Period. Like, full stop. The artists of pain and suffering in the 20th century, like, we're talking about Erica Maria Marark's, or Remarks, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, or Hemingway, or any of these other writers who are particularly adept at looking at human suffering. I don't think even they are willing to stoop quite as low as Dostoevsky is willing to. And this is not, you know, a slur on Dostoevsky or anything like that. He is reporting what he has found. And it is shocking. It is painful to read. I have had, you know, I have tried to assign this to students in some cases, and I know that some of them have put it away. They couldn't handle it. And that's not a dig on them either. We shouldn't have to. The whole point of this chapter is that this is so incredibly, unbelievably, and importantly, unforgivably awful that we should be sitting here in mute horror. Alyosha himself remarks, when prompted, that yes, the man who, th who had the kid torn apart by his dogs should be shot. 
like Alyosha says this. Alyosha, who has been training under the father Zosima, who has specifically been trained in compassion, who has shown compassion for literally every character in this novel, no matter how horrible they have been to one another, he says, yeah, that guy should get shot. And it is a moment of weakness. And he knows that it's a moment of weakness. He admits as much. He's like, yeah, I also have a Karamazov soul. I recognize my first gut reaction is that that guy, there is no punishment great enough on earth for him and what he has done. And this is very much Ivan's point. We are not talking about the suffering of adults here. He very much emphasizes, you know, adults, they get what's coming to them. Nothing, you know, they're all horrible sinners. They are all participants in the fall. Like, he uses a lot of elevated biblical language here to sort of drive home this point. They have participated in the knowledge of good and evil thing. They, have, they can see the, the choices as gods. Therefore, they are fundamentally culpable. And if bad things happen to them, if in fact a mother dies horribly on the streets of a church, he doesn't care. Like, it was coming to them. They made the choice. Um, we are all, to some degree, tainted in that respect. Ivan acknowledges this, but he does accept children. And this is where we get into some fairly deep theological water. Um, I should stress, at least from the outset here, Dostoevsky is approaching children as though they are innocent for, I say this very carefully, Orthodox Christianity, children are not innocent. They are also participants in the fall. Whether or not they know good and evil is not even kind of part of the issue. The fact that Ivan emphasizes this and the fact that Dostoevsky emphasizes this is probably theologically inappropriate to some degree, at least from the Christian perspective. But from the human perspective, we do recognize a difference. And I don't think Dostoevsky is wrong to bring that up. From the Christian perspective, the children had it coming too. And that is a really awful thing to say about like a seven-year-old kid sitting in a, you know, in an outdoor outhouse freezing to death in the middle of the Russian winter. I know that that is a painfully heartless thing to say. Um... And if you are not a Christian listening to this and you're like, wow, Christianity sure sucks, I can't blame you on that one. Um, like, I am frustrated by this in my faith as well. But from Christian doctrine, and note that Ivan knows this, like Ivan recognizes this, Ivan acknowledges this, it is all going to come out in the wash. This is what Christianity teaches. Yes, children suffer, babies suffer, adults suffer, people suffer unjustly all the time. Just look at Job. We have a whole 50 chapters about this random dude who didn't deserve suffering, who suffered anyway. This is a huge problem in Christianity. You know, if you've listened to my lectures on Thomas Aquinas, you'll hear me say there are two arguments against the existence of God. The first of which is evil exists. Why doesn't God stop it? Therefore, there must not be a God. Number two is just, we can explain the universe coming about some other way and therefore don't need God. And that's it. Like, I've literally never encountered a third one. It's either evil exists so God can't, or why do we need a God at all? Like, that's it. That's all there is. Um, I have yet to hear anyone come up with argument number three. Um, but argument one, number one is really good. And we should emphasize, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, that's all this chapter is. It's just the problem of evil. It's basically saying, hey, 
God allows suffering to happen. God is all good, and therefore we would think he would do that. Therefore, God can't exist. But notice that that's not actually the direction that Ivan is taking this. As much as this looks like a typical run-of-the-mill problem of evil, Ivan doesn't disallow the existence of God. His, his point here is not that God does not exist. His point is that even if he does, and he assumes that God does, he's not willing to buy this. He wants to, as he puts it, quoting, I believe Schiller, I think, he wants to return his ticket. He is allowed forgiveness. That is what the Christian message is all about. He says, no, I refuse. If, in fact, these people are allowed to do these horrific, abominable atrocities to children, then I cannot, I cannot accept that this universe is righteous. That's what he's basically saying. If you've heard my lectures on David Hume, this might sound familiar. This is exactly what Philo argues towards the end of the dialogues concerning natural religion. He is basically going to say, hey, the world is relentlessly evil. There's tons of suffering, unnecessary suffering, pain that is not warranted. Therefore, I can conclude that God exists. What I cannot conclude is that God is good. Ivan is saying the same thing here. God cannot be good. I refuse to accept the justice of this universe. I refuse to accept God's promise that all of this will be set right in the end. He wants retribution now. He wants to see the guy who sicked his dogs on this poor young innocent boy torn to pieces or worse, something appropriately befitting the horrific action that he has perpetrated. Ivan refuses this God's sense of justice, this God's sense of goodness. And he knows what the promise is. He knows how this is supposed to work. He knows that the ultimate solution here is, you know, yes, it's a grand mystery to us, and God will one day set all of it right. Like, this is Christian orthodoxy. At the end of the day, the promise here is, yeah, things are really going to suck here, and sin afflicts everyone, whether they deserve it or not, and we are all sort of bound up in this horrible, you know, united suffering. This thing that Dostoevsky is, like, definitely turning the magnifying glass on, especially in this chapter. What is suffering? Why is it happening? Why do we put up with it? Why do we have to put up with it? And how do we somehow, through all of this, hold on to our faith? Ivan's solution is, faith isn't the problem. But goodness is. My conscience will not allow me to accept the promise of a heaven from a God who lets this happen. If God is letting these kids be torn apart, even if it is supposedly for some greater good, even if they will be receive some greater glorification, even if the millennia in heaven turn out to totally make them forget all of the suffering, even if the kid himself goes up to the man who tore him apart and forgives him, Ivan refuses. Ivan will not. Ivan refuses to let that injustice down. Even if the guy is forgiven, Ivan will not forget. Nor should we, he emphasizes. Now, the solution, which Alyosha correctly comes up with, 
And this is, again, what Christian dogma teaches is, what about Jesus? Jesus is the one who pays the price. If, in fact, Mr. Horrible Dog Owner who tore, about, tore apart the child with his hounds sits on and like has a come-to-Jesus moment, if he repents of his evil, he can talk to Jesus, and Jesus took the punishment. Jesus has paid the price. That is what Christianity teaches. And this is where Ivan turns the discussion. He wants to talk about Jesus. But weirdly, his approach isn't direct, and that's what makes the Grand Inquisitor so weird. Like, it's not a response. Ivan has basically said, okay, I am not a Christian because I refuse to accept the morality that allows for a child to suffer horribly, for multiple children to suffer horribly, let alone one. Like, one would be enough for Ivan. If it was even one child who had to suffer in order for the entirety of God's plan to, you know, go into motion, he would still shoot it down. And he doesn't have to settle for that because there are so many children suffering in such horrible ways beyond what even what he's heard about. Even the one would be enough for him. He's got this argument, you know, kind of sewn up in this respect. But Christians will say, it's okay. Jesus made it right. His sacrifice, his suffering, allows for a world where this injustice is permitted to happen, and yet people can be saved. People are allowed to come away from it. And Ivan is kind of similar to Smerdyakov, sort of narrowing the field of what constitutes Christianity as a consequence. Like, we get this discussion here of the sort of few and the many, and exactly how many people are going to be refused Christianity, the way the Grand Inquisitor talks about it. But it's not like he's answered the question. It's not like Jesus has somehow solved this problem for Ivan. Like, Jesus isn't even an answer, as far as Ivan seems to be concerned here. But let's, let's look at it. Let's take this Grand Inquisitor passage apart. What is, in fact, happening here? Um, and I literally have, like, I made up notes for this lecture, and I literally have, okay, I want to talk about this, 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 and this. And right next to Inquisitor, I have just three question marks. Like, that's that's all I've got. I, I really don't know exactly what we're going to find from here. So notice that, again, Ivan is Im immediately sort of immersed in his own perspective. He starts with caveats, but here, too, it's impossible to do without a preface, a literary preface. That is, pa, Ivan laughed. And what sort of writer am I? Immediately, he's already denigrating himself. He knows he's about to do something big. That this is, you know, one of the big things that he wants to share with Alyosha, and possibly that he's never shared with anyone else. Um, he knows that this is important to him, that this is serious for him. And yet, at the same time, he wants to undercut it. You know, it's that same psychological motivation that makes us say, eh, I didn't do well on that test, hoping that if it turns out to be a low grade we won't have to feel ashamed, but if it turns out to be a high grade, oh, look, surprise, it turns out that we're better than we thought. You know, it's a hedging one's bets, so to speak. So here we have this story, taking place in the 16th century during the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. And there is, in fact, the Inquisition going on. We are set up, and here is this stage where the Grand Inquisitor is, in fact, torturing people on the auto de fe, setting them on fire. It is yet another scene of horrific suffering, this time in the name of God himself. And in the midst of this, Jesus shows up. Jesus himself. 
Not the second coming, Jesus. Ivan emphasizes this. This is apparently just a social call or something. Apparently, Jesus is so struck by the plight of the people who are suffering during the Inquisition that he comes down just to visit, and immediately everybody recognizes him. Like, the crowd immediately knows it's him. He starts performing healings. Like, we even get, you know, there is this promise that this kid is going to get raised from the dead. But right in the middle of this apparent resurrective miracle, he is interrupted. And the Grand Inquisitor arrests him. Which is, of course, where things get exciting. The Grand Inquisitor brings him down to prison. Notice Jesus has not spoken at all during this, this period, and will not speak at all during this whole story. Finally, the Grand Inquisitor starts, you know, interrogating him, which actually just turns out into, like, one of the great villainous monologues in the history of literature. Um, the Grand Inquisitor explains why he is doing the work that he is. And we break it up into three sections, because essentially the Grand Inquisitor accuses Jesus of inappropriately rejecting the three great temptations in the wilderness. Like, the passages recorded in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. This incredibly important passage. For context, Jesus is in the wilderness. This is right after he gets called by, like, from, by God, from John the Baptist. Like, he gets baptized. He's ready to go on his ministry. But first, 40 days in the wilderness, no food or drink, per like, total just, you know, fasting, and the devil tempts him three times. And importantly, the, the, the order varies between Matthew and Luke. Um, the three temptations are always the same, but the order in which they occur differ. I think Dostoevsky is following Luke here. Um, at any rate, we get the three temptations. First, Christ is tempted with bread. Um, the devil shows up and he's like, Hey, you're the Messiah. You can turn these stones into bread and feed yourself. Why don't you just do that and not worry about it? And Jesus responds, Man cannot live by bread alone. For the Grand Inquisitor, this is interpreted another step. All of the temptations are interpreted another step. For the Grand Inquisitor, it is incredibly important to note that bread is the one thing that everyone, every human being could get on board for. That if Jesus had, in fact, just turned the stones to bread, not just for himself, but for everyone, which he can do. Like, we, the most famous miracles that Jesus performs, short of the healings and resurrections, are the multiplication of loaves and fishes. Like, multiple times in the Gospels, he sits down and he's like, okay, we've got, like, three loaves of bread and two fishes, and bam, now we're feeding 5,000 people, and we've got baskets of leftovers. Like, on some level, it is very clearly obvious that Jesus could show up and end world hunger overnight if that was what he was here to do. So the Grand Inquisitor assumes this. You rejected this temptation not as a sort of like rejecting to submit to the devil, but because you were rejecting to submit to an authority. By which I mean Christ himself refuses to solve this most obvious of human problems because that would position Christ as an unassailable authority. For all three of these temptations, the Grand Inquisitor accuses Jesus of giving people freedom. And here is the first place. If Jesus just showed up with bread and gave it to everybody, solved the world hunger, everybody would naturally bow down to him. There would be no question. There would be no question of, you know, do you have to have faith in Jesus? No, he, he just made everybody happy. Everybody is now better off. One of the major human problems has been solved by Jesus. Obviously, we will worship him. No question. We are not in religious 
will-they-won't-they miracle territory here. We are in, like, straight-up practical, I worship and obey you because you fulfill my physical needs. It would be the same relationship that a person would have to a king in many senses. Although that technically is a different temptation, a different conversation. And notice that the way that the Grand Inquisitor talks about it, we're not just sort of positing this sort of like, you know, Jesus is fulfilling human needs attitude. There's a Marxist bent here. Like that whole Marxist language frequently includes discussions of how like we don't need, you know, fancy entertainment. We don't need ideology. We don't need, you know, religion. What we need is bread. We need boots. We need tools. Marxists consistently talk this way. And I don't know if I'm reading that into Dostoevsky, but in this case, I think I ought to. We are suggesting here that Christ could solve a major world problem, a major physical issue, and by doing so, make himself an unassailable authority. Solve this problem, make people happy, be worshipped. But the key for the Grand Inquisitor is that Jesus won't do that. That he refuses to do that. That he very deliberately does not do this. Because he is preserving freedom. Which for the Grand Inquisitor is a bad move. For multiple reasons, which we'll get into. But even from the very first, when the Grand Inquisitor meets Jesus, he says, you're not allowed to speak. You said your piece. You don't get to add anything now. Which Alyosha even remarks, this is kind of unbelievable, and Ivan's like, eh, just go with it for now. The second temptation for Dostoevsky, and again, I believe for Luke, is the miracle. Satan leads Jesus up to the highest point on the highest tower and says, cast yourself down and find out if you really are the Son of God, which apparently is a question in Orthodox, I'm pretty sure in most you know, Protestant interpretations of this passage, as well as most, most Catholic interpretations of this passage. That's kind of not what's going on here. Um, but it's complicated, and the last thing we need to do is get mired into the theological interpretation as well as the Dostoevsky interpretation. Suffice it to say, the Grand Inquisitor interprets this passage where the devil says, Jesus, throw yourself down. If you are, in fact, the Son of God, angels will, like, pick you up, and you will be perfectly safe, and you don't have to worry about it. And Jesus is like, it is written, you will not tempt the Lord your God. All right, I'm going to allow myself a little biblical interpretation, because this is actually a big deal, tempting the Lord your God. Um, this is the thing that Moses did. And in fact, I'm pretty sure this is the passage that Jesus is quoting here. Moses, when he was leading all those Israelites through the wilderness back in Numbers, I know that book that nobody reads, but one day I'll finally get to talk to you about, Moses screws up. Like, multiple times, the Israelites are whining, like, eh, we're hungry, we should go back to Egypt, because they at least had food. And Moses is like, dude, God is here, God can handle this, what's the problem? And we get manna from heaven. And then the Israelites are like, oh, we're thirsty, we should just go back to Egypt, at least they had water there. And Moses is like, oh my gosh, you're the worst. And God's like, hit the stone with your rock and water will come out. And Moses hits the stone with his rock and he's like, all right, here is the you know water you asked for, God gave it to you. And this happens over and over and over again. Like there's three, four, five examples of this whining. We get quails, we get manna, we get water, and they're never ever happy. And they're never, ever convinced that God is, in fact, going to protect them when they're sitting around wandering in the wilderness, despite the fact that the whole point of this exercise is to get them to believe that God will protect them. And finally, we get this moment in Numbers where they're whining again, oh, there's no water, we want water, and Moses is like, oh my gosh, 
All right, bam! I smack the rock with my staff, and water comes out. Look, I'm giving you water. Can you shut up now? And God takes Moses aside and is like, okay, Moses, I give the water around here. I told you to just gesture at the rock, and the water would spring forth. You did not, and as a consequence, you don't get to go to the promised land either, because you tempted the Lord your God. You tested me. And I don't appreciate that. We're getting something different here with Jesus, where Jesus is apparently going to test the Lord in this plummet from the high tower. We're going to, you know, make sure that God is there protecting him. And this is also something you definitely don't do. I might, there may be other passages here that are especially relevant. The Moses one I know is the direct quote, or at least I think it is the direct quote. Maybe I am showing my ignorance and my hubris here as well. Um, suffice it to say that you don't tempt the Lord your God. You do not test him. You do not make sure he is there. The whole business of faith whether it's Israelites clamoring for water in the wilderness and Moses forgetting that it's God who's doing the work here, or Jesus who, you know, just has to make absolutely sure that he is the Son of God. That's not how God works. He is not a magician who shows up for our pleasure and performs tricks at command. No. We obey him, not the other way around. Now, the Grand Inquisitor interprets this another way, obviously. For the Grand Inquisitor, this is an opportunity to perform the defining miracle. The miracle that will prove to all the nations that Jesus is the Son of God. Where the devil seems to be saying, prove that you're the Son of God to me, Dostoevsky slash the Grand Inquisitor slash Ivan slash whoever we're supposed to be understanding this coming from at this point, interprets this to mean that it's for everyone. By proving you are the Son of God, you do it for all. And Jesus, again, rejects this. And the Grand Inquisitor, again, criticizes him. He says, if you were willing to perform miracles all the time, if you were willing to establish your authority in this way, if you were willing to, you know, solve their problems with mysteries and, and things of this nature, yeah, you would lose God in the long run. And he even stresses that. He says, if you had, in fact, done it, if you had taken one step, God would not have protected you because you would have tempted him, you would have violated the rule that he set down, and you would have smashed yourself on the earth into little bits. But since you are, in fact, God, theoretically, you could also save yourself, in which case, look at all the people who would immediately fall into line behind you, who are looking for miracles, for religion. And notice, this is what the Grand Inquisitor promises to people. He is saying, hey, we control the religious mysteries. We are the keeper of the keys. We are the ones who guarantee you heaven and salvation, and we will take all of your problems and we will fix them for you. Maybe you won't successfully have it during your lifetime, but we, the church, guarantee you a seat in heaven later on. The miracle is real. We own it. Come to us and we'll solve your problems for you. And in the process, make you happy. Because that's the key here. The Inquisitor offers happiness. Jesus offers freedom. The two are incompatible as far as the Inquisitor is concerned. And this is that it's most important in the third temptation. In the third temptation of the Bible, again, I believe according to Luke, devil takes Jesus up onto some high mountain and says, hey, look, spread out before you are all the nations of the earth, which keep in mind this is during the Roman Empire, so the Roman Empire is a big deal at this point. Grand Inquisitor mentions this. Um, here are all the nations of the world. If you swear fealty to me, the devil, 
I will give you Dominion over all of them. And this obviously is a bad deal. Like, the devil isn't even trying at this point, it seems. Like, yeah, you're just going to swear fealty to the devil. Um, and Jesus is just, like, giving him a flat no on this one. Like, that's not how this is going to go down. But the Grand Inquisitor stresses this is the most important one. This is where you absolutely should have taken over. Because they need to be ruled. They want to be ruled. They are desperate to be ruled. Like, he gives his whole speech about, yeah, they've seen their bread turned to ash in their mouths. They, you know, had their bread that they worked for, that they plotted out of the ground, turned to stone, and then they brought it to us, and we turn it back to bread for them. They care more about not having to make decisions, not having freedom, than they do about being fed, being, you know, satisfied, having their basic needs fulfilled. The fundamental thing that the Grand Inquisitor, and by extension the Catholic Church, offers to people is rule. The ability to basically sidestep their own moral responsibilities. The Catholic Church, as Ivan, as the Grand Inquisitor describes it, for this nominal fee, will totally absolve you of all moral responsibility. You will come to us and we will tell you, you can marry this person, you can't marry this person. You can plant at this time, you can't plant at this time. You can perform this action and you can't perform this action. This is right, this is wrong, don't think for yourselves, we'll do it for you. And they will love them for it. The people will come clamoring to have them lay down this law. And the Grand Inquisitor says, this is our price. This is what we do. And I defy you to condemn us for it. We have taken away their freedom, yes. The freedom that you gave them with and that they can't use. That you have irresponsibly bestowed on everyone equally. And notice the Grand Inquisitor emphasizes there's a cost to this. Only a few are going to make it into heaven under this, this scenario. Most people are going to suffer pointlessly, die pointlessly, and go to hell pointlessly because they don't have any guidance. They don't understand the consequences of their actions. They are given this tiny little insight on how faith is supposed to work, and then they're supposed to work out the rest of it for themselves, and obviously they can't do that. They're not educated. They're not smart. They're not good. They're just prone to selfishness and violent passions, and they do stupid things. They will, in fact, kill each other. You have not just doomed everyone to hell, but you've doomed everyone on Earth as well, because it's going to be miserable while they're trying to fight through it. At the very least, what the Church is doing, the Grand Inquisitor is essentially arguing, is giving them happiness now. You claim to love them, and yet you let them die, struggle, pointlessly, meaninglessly. You give them this supposed freedom to choose between good and evil, the supposed freedom to follow you, and you know perfectly well that none of them are going to do it. Or at least the incredible minority among them. They'll see it, they'll know what the difference is to some degree, but they can't do it. They're not capable, they're not smart enough, or they're not willpower enough. Take your pick. Not possible. But we will. We will put them in order. We will solve their problems. We will give them bread. We will give them miracles. We will give them government. We will take their evil and turn it into good. We will make an orderly society on the face of this earth. We will give them happiness, at least for now. And yeah, when they die, they die. We know that. They, 
and you know that, they don't, and that's fine. It is all an elaborate lie, a huge hoax. And the Grand Inquisitor knows that it's a hoax. And in fact, Alyosha challenges Ivan on this. He's like, wait, do you really think that anyone in the Catholic Church actually believes this? And Ivan is like, some of them probably do. And for everyone that does, all the rest who are just in it for the money are ultimately working to the same cause. As long as some cadre, some one person or dozen or governing council or whatever has this as their selfless agenda, I will perpetrate a horrific and great lie, a terrible sin that will un almost undoubtedly damn me in order to give these people, who otherwise have no chance, some modicum of happiness. The Grand Inquisitor says, so damn me. Go ahead! I defy you. I refuse to pass on the truth of what you've offered, the truth of this freedom. Because instead, I am saving these people. I am helping them. I am mitigating the suffering. I am, through my lie, doing a good deed. The same sort of good deed that you wanted us to do. So then what? What are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to damn us for trying to clean up the mess that you left us? Or are you going to recognize that this was the right move all along. And again, this is where Alyosha freaks out. Alyosha is like, this is not how the Catholic Church works. And we get this really, honestly, very denigrating remark about Jesuitism. Again, it's the 19th century. The Pope has recently named himself infallible. Everybody hates Catholicism right now. It's kind of a thing. Um, especially in Russia, where orthodoxy is king. You'll notice this is like the second or third time that Dostoevsky has made a fairly denigrating remark against the Jesuits especially, who are like some sort of awful philosophers slash theologians who are engaged in this sort of cheap manipulation for monetary reasons, or at least this is how Dostoevsky understands it. I don't know exactly the deal there. Like, I'm definitely not familiar enough with Jesuit theology in the 19th century to be able to weigh in on this, much less how or what the what the Russians are seeing of this Jesuit behavior. I kind of get the feeling that this is another one of those sorts of bad raps through atheist press kind of situations. At any rate, Alyosha's like, this, this is not possible. This is This is not realistic. Like, yes, the church is power-hungry. Yes, the church wants money. Yes, the church is manipulating people. I accept all of that. But the fact that there are, like, suffering servants who are, in fact, you know, giving up their lives so people will be happy and, you know, perpetrating this lie because they believe that people's freedom is, is just a bad, bad thing for them... He's like, no, that's not realistic. But it's clear that Ivan identifies with this. Ivan connects to this. And now Yosha picks up on this. He's like, so you are the Grand Inquisitor in this situation. And Ivan hedges. Like, on the one hand, Alyosha says all this. On the other hand, he's saying that this is a fantasy. This can't possibly be real. This, How could anyone believe this? And importantly, he also mentions, but you made Jesus the hero. Like, and Ivan has. Notice that the Grand Inquisitor is the villain. Like, when I describe this as a villainous monologue, Ivan would agree with that. He would agree with that assessment. But despite that, he considers it true. Presented with this dilemma, this do we give people freedom or do we give people happiness, do we allow suffering at the expense of this supposedly really important choice, 
to be good or evil, to be able to go to heaven or not, Ivan chooses to make people happy, to mitigate suffering. He can't stand that side of suffering, and he doesn't consider freedom to be a worthwhile exchange. He disagrees with Jesus, even as he recognizes that Jesus is at the end of the day right. Ivan can't stand by and watch children get torn apart, where Jesus apparently can. At least God can. And whatever logic allows for that to be the case, Ivan's not willing to tolerate it, like we talked about in Rebellion. This is where he's willing to draw the line. No, I don't go this far. I believe in happiness. I believe in alleviating suffering. I believe in searching for what makes you content. And freedom be damned. And Alyosha mentions that on the one hand, this might connect to his all-is-permitted theory? Which this is where I don't know where all the pieces go together. Like, rebellion leading into the Grand Inquisitor, I can largely follow it. Okay, so we're talking about suffering, we're talking about alleviating suffering at any cost, including apparently sacrificing freedom. That's why the Grand Inquisitor is ultimately aligned with Ivan and Jesus is, as much as he is the correct answer, yes, everybody should have freedom, yes, this does contribute to the overall good, yes, what is good without this thing, however we want to interpret this, Whatever it means, Ivan is on the side of, let's get rid of the suffering at any cost. Don't care about people's freedom. Screw adults and all of their knowledge of good and evil. That is apparently a liability, a danger, as far as Ivan is concerned. Ivan is one of those very romantic intellectuals who, on the one hand, are kind of ashamed and wish they weren't intellectual. Um, but on the other hand, we have this all-is-permitted business. If, in fact, this is true, and God doesn't exist, and the whole of Christianity is nonsense, and it doesn't all hold together, then Ivan concludes everything is permitted. We've heard this before. We had Dimitri sort of present it when we were discussing this at the monastery, and Ivan admits that as distorted as it was, Ivan isn't totally against the way that Dimitri formulated it. Honestly, there's a sort of allure to Dimitri's kind of guileless approach towards this discussion, which means that on some level, Ivan agrees with the principle that all is permitted, that despite the fact that he has just delivered this long, passionate two-chapter speech on how suffering is worse than freedom can warrant, and therefore presumably he's willing to sacrifice freedom for the sake of happiness, apparently he's also saying that freedom above all. Like, we don't live in that world. We have freedom. And therefore, if in fact, as Jesus seems to be claiming, or as Ivan's vision of Jesus here seems to be claiming, freedom was the top priority, somehow that means that he can do whatever he wants, including, as he seems to be alluding here, committing suicide in his 30th year. You know, he's going to drink deeply from the cup, and then once he turns 30, smash it. Not drink anymore. And Alyosha is attentive to this. Alyosha is sympathetic. Obviously, he doesn't want Ivan to commit suicide. But at the same time, Alyosha understands and appreciates Ivan's position. Namely, Ivan is going to, like the Karamazovs do, drink deeply, including his love of Katerina Ivanovna, or whatever it is that he feels for Katerina Ivanovna. And then, apparently, once he turns 30, he will, whether he's tired of life or not, throw it away. Presumably because he is in rebellion. 
as we talked about. He is rejecting the promise of heaven. He is going to throw his life into God's face rather than accept the rules of this universe that God seems to have laid down. I don't know what that means. I don't. I don't know how everything is permitted necessarily falls into this. I don't know how we can square Ivan's conviction that suffering is untenable with his apparent acceptance of freedom. I don't. Like, maybe this is just a particularly cynical, nihilistic aside, not something that he actually believes for himself, but rather something that he acknowledges is the case, that, you know, since God's rule is either illogical or immoral or whatever, that there is no logic, no morality, and that therefore we live in this sort of hyper-naturalistic, utilitarian world where suffering is all, and therefore our goal should not be, you know, satisfying some god or some religion, but just doing whatever we want. We could take this in the Sartrean way and see this as a confession of Ivan's atheism. Maybe he doesn't care about suffering all that much, or he's just using it as this intellectual sort of vaulting position to reject the existence of God and therefore conclude that he can do whatever he damn well pleases because who's going to stop him and what morality is there to prevent him from doing this. All of these seem like fairly valid approaches, or at least possible interpretations of what's going on here. I hesitate to classify Ivan as an atheist, though. And I certainly hesitate to see him embracing wholesale this all-is-permitted perspective. I don't think he agrees with that. I don't think he's willing to live that. He might agree with it intellectually. He might see the truth of it intellectually, at least here. But I don't see him as being able to say, everybody do what you want, damn the consequences, when he has so passionately talked about what those consequences include and why he's not willing to put up with them. Like... Is he just rejecting God altogether? Is this, in fact, a problem of evil philosophical question? I don't know. I really don't. I wish I did. I'm not entirely sure what Dostoevsky is wrestling with here. I'm not entirely sure what Ivan is wrestling with here. Which, maybe it'll clear up later. Maybe we'll be able to solve this as we go. But there is one really important note that we do need to talk about. Namely the ending. Alyosha asks him, is that where it ends? Ivan says no. After the Grand Inquisitor has delivered this strong, passionate speech and promised to, you know, cr or kill Christ on the next day in the Auto de Fe, he asks Jesus, you know, like, here is my grand, you know, perspective. I am giving my life for the happiness of the multitude. Can you forgive me? Can you damn me? And Jesus responds by kissing him. And Ivan, too, after discussing all of this business of everything is permitted and potentially denying God and siding with the Grand Inquisitor, he asks Alyosha for the same thing. Do you forgive me? Do you, you know, acknowledge my truth? Do you see my perspective? Let's look at the passage, actually. This is 263. So he... Ivan asks... Um, is sort of alluding to this. I don't even know where to start from here. It's all so important! Um, so Ivan says at the bottom of page 262, but it's nonsense, Alyosha. It's just a muddled poem of a muddled student who never wrote two lines of verse. Again, undercutting the philosophy, undercutting his idea, undercutting the whole Grand Inquisitor poem. 
Why are you taking it so seriously? You don't think I'll go straight to the Jesuits now to join the host of those who are correcting his deed? Good lord, what do I care? As I told you, I just want to drag on until I'm 30 and then smash the cup on the floor. Nalyosha responds, and the sticky little leaves and the precious graves and the blue sky and the woman you love? How will you live? What will you love them with? Alyosha exclaimed ruefully. Is it possible with such hell in your heart and in your head? No, you're precisely going in order to join them. And if not, you'll kill yourself. You won't endure it. There is a force that will endure everything, said Ivan, this time with a cold smirk. What force? The Karamazov force. The force of the Karamazov baseness. So on some level, Ivan is saying, it doesn't matter what I believe. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a Karamazov, and it will still outweigh whatever I'm doing, and whatever I'm saying, and whatever I believe. At the end of the day, I'm still going to be a filthy, ugly Karamazov, indulging my basest qualities until I'm 30, at which point I determine to kill myself, because why wouldn't I if I am doomed to this sort of sinfulness and evil? To drown in depravity, Alyosha asks, to stifle your soul with corruption, is that it? That too, perhaps. Only until my 30th year, maybe I'll escape it. And then... How will you escape it? By means of what? With your thoughts, it's impossible. Again, in Karamazov fashion. You mean, Alyosha, everything is permitted? Everything is permitted? Is that right, is it? And notice that Ivan takes this seriously. He frowns. He suddenly turned somehow strangely pale. Ah, you caught that little remark yesterday, which offended Miusov so much, and that brother Dmitri so naively popped up and rephrased. He grinned crookedly. Yes, perhaps everything is permitted, since the word has already been spoken. I do not renounce it, and Matenka's version is not so bad. Notice, he doesn't buy it. He doesn't accept it. He, he accepts it insofar as he says, yeah, I suppose I don't renounce it. But he also acknowledges this isn't what he had in mind. This is kind of roughly comparable to whatever he was thinking, but not, it isn't it. And Alyosha looks at him silently, and Ivan continues, I thought, brother, that when I left here, I'd have you at least, and all the world. But now I see that in your heart, too, there is no room for me, my dear hermit. The formula, everything is permitted, I will not renounce. And what then? Will you renounce me for that? Will you? If Ivan is, in fact, wrestling with this, if Ivan is, in fact, convinced that everything is permitted, if Ivan has, in fact, denied God, he asks, will you still love me? And Alyosha kisses him the same way that Jesus kissed the Grand Inquisitor. And notice we've seen this with the Elder as well. We see this pretty consistently in this book. For these characters who are sort of over-intellectualizing their problems, turning them into these huge, like, titanic battles of good and evil and so on, oftentimes the solution is just a humble kiss or an embrace or somebody showing just the slightest bit of affection. This is, I think, more of what Dostoevsky has to say than the Grand Inquisitor ever was. Like, whether or not Dostoevsky is wrestling with the, the, you know, hell in his heart that Alyosha is talking about here, you know, whether or not he too is wondering about all this suffering and wondering if he can justify it to himself, notice that Alyosha kind of solves this puzzle. You know, can we in fact justify the suffering of all these children with, you know, the pain and the awfulness and the atrocities that are committed in the name of freedom. And Alyosha responds not with yes or no, but by adding something, namely affection. If it was all just good and evil, if it was all just suffering and freedom, we would live in a really awful world, and it would absolutely be warranted to ask these questions. But we have something else. We have love. 
we have kindness. We have positive behavior in addition to just negative behavior. Sin is not the only force in the world. And Alyosha, as much as, you know, Ivan has just bared himself to him, notice that what Ivan is effectively doing here is not trying to convince Alyosha or engage in some intellectual debate. He is bearing his soul. He is presenting himself to Alyosha. And he is presenting himself for the simple reason that he wants Alyosha's approval, or at least his affection. He says, here I am, warts and all, hell in my heart and all. All of the broken ideas, all of the Karamazov lust and depravity, here I am. Can you accept me? And at the end of the day, that's what mattered. Like, not the Grand Inquisitor and the freedom and the suffering and the big ideas. Like, Alyosha kisses him and is like, okay, we're good. Like, notice his response here. Literary theft, Ivan cried, suddenly going into some kind of rapture. You stole that from my poem. Thank you, however. Notice he cares about what Alyosha thinks. That's what's driving him. That's what's always driven him. Remember back, way back in like chapter one where we were talking about Ivan and Ivan growing up in the household being keenly aware of the debt that he was incurring on his the people who were taking care of him and how he went out and started working, making money so he could pay through his own university classes so he wouldn't be in debt. This is what matters to him. His honor, his ego, his standing in society and not hurting others in the process. This is what matters. He wants recognition. He wants love. And Alyosha gives it to him. Because of course he does. Alyosha just loves everybody. He doesn't have any judgment. Like the only person we've seen who has legitimately resisted Alyosha's like quasi-supernatural attraction is Smerdyakov. For reasons that may become obvious soon. But not Ivan. Ivan loves Alyosha. He has said so. And it is obvious here. Who cares about the suffering? And if you do want a philosophical answer to that question, remember, as much as it sucks for the kids who are, in fact, torn apart by dogs or thrust onto bayonets or locked into outhouses, isn't it also great that some kids are loved? Like, not just fake or in some Freudian, narcissistic sense, but like, Really and truly, their parents are proud of them, and they care about them, and they raise them with tenderness and with kindness. And yet, that's something that hasn't been on display in this book very often. Fyodor Pavlovich did not show affection towards his children, and from what I can tell, Grigory Vasilyevich didn't care much for them either. He did his duty, that was all. But Alyosha and the Elder Zosima consistently show kindness, love, like real love. And as much as, you know, it's easy to get sort of lost in the verbiage and to get caught up in all of this high intellectual discussion, which, you know, very much distinguishes this book from everything else out there. It's why people come to this book. They read it for the Grand Inquisitor. They read it for Ivan's anxieties and for all of the discussions about high intellectual pursuits. I read it for Alyosha kissing people. Not willy-nilly, but because he cares about them. Because Dostoevsky cares about these characters. Because Dostoevsky cares about Russia. 
because Dostoevsky sees all of these students writing these nasty letters to each other and engaging in this intellectual lawlessness and destroying themselves because of their ideas, and really, Dostoevsky thinks they just need a hug. Dostoevsky recognizes that the solution to all of these big intellectual problems, these big mind-tearing anxieties, is love. Something that we frequently lose track of because we've got all of this philosophy getting in the way. This is not a philosophical novel. This is a compassionate novel. And the philosophy is, if anything, the enemy. It's what disguises that. Not to say that it's wrong. There's good philosophy. Father Zosima has par participated in some of that when he's describing it, but his philosophy is compassion. And it's a very simple, straightforward philosophy. They've been teaching it for 2,500 years, for God's sake. And because it is so hard to do, we keep forgetting about how important it actually is, how much it actually solves, what power it actually has. But of course, we can't end there. Because we get intrigue. We don't follow Alyosha after this. We get a little paragraph or two, as he has apparently completely forgotten about finding Dmitri because he is now so concerned with, with Ivan's particular plight. But Ivan goes home to Fyodor Pavlovich and is accosted by Smerdyakov. And we get this very cryptic conversation between the two. And I don't want to spoil things. This is all heavily cryptic because it is all very heavily foreshadowing. And some of that you should be able to read here. Like, Smerdyakov specifically is emphasizing, you know, mm, uh, are you going to Chernyshevsky tomorrow? And Ivan is like, Chernyshevsky, why would I go there? And we find out later that, like, his dad wants him to go to Chernyshevsky in order to conduct this parent, like, somewhat dubious land deal where he's going to sell a plot of land to somebody or like get, buy the land back for after it's been clear-cut or something. I, I forget the exact details. It's not especially important. But he's gonna. he wants Ivan to go do the deal for him. And Smirnikov seems to be emphasizing to Ivan that you should do this. And when Ivan is like, why? Why do I care? And notice that Ivan gets really short with Smerdyakov. Like, Ivan cannot tolerate his company. His initial reaction is repulsion. Like, to tell him to get away, I'm no friend of yours. But Smerdyakov has apparently adopted him as a confidant. And we get even some history here. Like, Ivan initially respected Smerdyakov because he had these big ideas and was willing to talk about these big ideas with Ivan, who is hard-pressed for intellectual conversation at this point. But at the same time, Smerdyakov is kind of the worst and keeps turning things around and seems to have some kind of hidden agenda that he's not willing to talk about. And this dishonesty offends Ivan. Because remember, at the end of the day, Ivan's intellectualism is sort of a cover for his own behavior, but he does actually believe in this stuff, is in fact wrestling with this stuff, is in fact trying to figure it out, where Smerdyakov isn't, it's just a game to him, something else is going on, and he's not willing to talk about it. But Smerdyakov here suggests that he's going to be having a falling fit soon. Remember, Smerdyakov is epileptic. In fact, many of the characters are epileptic. Like, we had Ivan and Alyosha related to, you know, their mother, who was frequently hysterical and apparently one of the shriekers. Now we see Smerdyakov the epileptic, and it is very much emphasized here that he is apparently prone to falling into these very long epileptic fits. 
I should also stress here that epileptic characters occur in Dostoevsky all the time. He himself was epileptic. Um, suffered seizures and falling fits and however we want to call them. Um, as a consequence, many of his protagonists are in fact epileptics. Raskolnikov is, um, Prince Mishkin and the Idiot is, Alyosha and Ivan are less clearly epileptic. It, they may not be at all. It's not entirely obvious what exactly their connection to this is. But Smerdyakov is, which is weird, because notice that it's primarily been protagonists up until this point. Smerdyakov is not a protagonist. Like, we have plenty of hints that that is not the case right now, and they are only going to get more obvious as we go through this novel. Um... Dostoevsky has flipped his alignment on this one for whatever reason. Uh, perhaps we'll figure out why. At any rate, Smirnyakov is apparently not only susceptible to falling fits, but he can apparently predict them. Something that Ivan points out. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to tell me when, in fact, you are going to have a falling fit. And he's like, yep, you're right. And doesn't question it. Like, Ivan is like, okay, so you're going to fake it. And Smirnyakov is like, maybe. Like, he's being really cagey about this. And the emphasis here that Smirnikov lays down is if he is, in fact, in this presumed falling fit that he thinks is going to happen, and at the same time, uh, Grigory Vasilyevich is also going to be incapacitated due to the fact that he is sick, something that usually ends with him being completely, like, flat on his back because his whole back goes out and his legs become effectively paralyzed. And what's more, even Marfa Ignatievna, Grigory Vasilyevich's wife, isn't going to be active because she, when Grigory Vasilyevich is, you know, on his back like this, usually solves the problem by giving him something to drink and then drinking the rest of the bottle herself. And both of them are lightweight, so they're both going to be flat on their back for the next, like, day and a half. And importantly, Smirnyakov emphasizes, wouldn't it be awful if during the day and a half that literally no one in the house is upright? Wouldn't it suck if Dmitry Fyodorovich took that moment to come in and kill his father? You know, what he's threatened to do multiple times at this point, and what he has even more reason to do, because apparently Fyodor Pavlovich has prepared 3,000 rubles. Remember, that is the exact sum that Dmitri owes to Katerina Ivanovna that is destroying him inside. He apparently has a 3,000 rubles in an envelope marked for Grushenka, and Dmitri knows about this, too, because Dmitri has apparently been threatening Smerdyakov, and Smerdyakov has been confessing all of this to Dmitri. And what's more, Smerdyakov has let Dmitri in on the secret code that they have between Fyodor and Smerdyakov and Grushenka that makes it so they can enter without threatening Fyodor. Smerdyakov seems very much to suggest that everything is about to fall into place for Dmitri to kill Fyodor. And the question, will you be going to Chernyshevsky, is effectively asking, are you going to stop it? Are you going to be here? In theory, Ivan is supposed to leave in the morning. He's supposed to go to Moscow. And he mentions, you know, I'm going to be in Moscow, this is none of my business, and Smirnikov says, if you go to Moscow, it'll be very inconvenient for you if, in fact, all this happened and you were suddenly interrupted and hypothetically had to be called back and then it, there would be this big delay. And Ivan's like, uh, what? But if you were in Chernyshevsky, then it would be really easy to contact you and you'd be back in no time at all and you wouldn't go out of your way nearly as much. And Ivan 
doesn't know what to make of this. It's very suspicious. And he's confused about it. Like, we get these passages where he's, like, not sure what's even going on, but he's not sure what Smyrniakov wants, and he, like, goes to bed and he prays for people beforehand, or does something very similar to praying. He's thinking about them, like, dwelling on them, thinking about all the people in his life right now. And in the morning, importantly, Fyodor, in fact, does ask him, will you go to Chernyshevsky? Will you take care of all of this business? And Ivan says, I'll decide on the way. But as he leaves, he tells Smyrniakov, yeah, I'm going to Chernyshevsky. And Smyrniakov is like, cool. And that's the end of the conversation. Ivan goes, and he ultimately decides, nope, not going to Chernyshevsky, going straight to Moscow. Why would I even think that? Send a message to my father saying I'm not willing to do his dirty work for him. And off he goes to Moscow. This will be important. If it isn't obvious from how cryptic and how I am, in fact, dwelling on this, this is going to be hugely important. But the importance of it isn't going to be manifest just yet. It is obvious that Smyrdiakov is being cagey. It is obvious that Smyrdiakov is plotting. It is not clear how at this point. It seems that Smyrdiakov is setting up a scenario where Dmitri will be able to come in and kill Fyodor with no repercussions, with no one to stop him. Grigory, Marfa, Smerdyakov, Ivan, all of the people who would normally be in the house will be gone, incapacitated, not able to stop this from happening. And notice, Smerdyakov even has a motive here. He stresses both Fyodor and Dmitri have been threatening his life. They have both been saying, do this or I will kill you. And he is now caught between the two of them. Caught holding secrets from each other. Caught betraying secrets to one another. On some level, Smyrdiakov has every reason in the world to orchestrate an end to this, violent though it may be, to let Dmitri come in, kill Fyodor, and at least then it's dealt with. Smyrdiakov even goes so far as to remind Ivan that if Fyodor dies right now, everybody gets money. Like, it's that cut and dry here, that Smerdyakov is sort of suggesting to Ivan that this might be a really convenient time for Fyodor to get whacked. But Ivan's not picking up on the cues, intellect though he may be. And Smerdyakov is not giving us terribly clear information either. It's tough to parse. But fortunately, we've got 400 pages left, so there's plenty of time for this to develop. However, for the next couple of, of chapters, we are going to be in a completely different territory altogether. Namely, it's time for us to return to the monastery and look at Elder Zosima and see his final days. Because you'll remember, at the beginning of this crazy day, back in the Father Farapont chapter, before Alyosha went on all of his errands, he very much stressed that he's probably going to die by tomorrow. So it's time for us to wave goodbye to Elder Zosima and see what his last wit and wisdom is for us. In a chapter which, again, Dostoevsky puts way more emphasis on and yet doesn't get nearly the press of the Grand Inquisitor. So for next time, it is the wit and wisdom of Elder Zosima. It is the sage advice and the, the deep thoughts. We will, in fact, be reading chapters, or book six, The Russian Monk. I look forward to chatting about it with you soon.
Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.